Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, Pastor of Mission and Worship here at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground Questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. Last week, we considered the question, how should I respond when others cherry-pick Bible verses and use them out of context? And we considered Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, as a case study. This week, we're considering a similar but slightly different question. What do we do when others accuse us of cherry-picking which parts of the Bible to listen to and obey? The most popular version of this critique usually centers on the issue of homosexuality. Christians often point to verses in the Old Testament like Leviticus 18.22 that forbid homosexuality uh, as we make our case to our non-Christian friends. And the response usually goes something like this. Yes, but Christians ignore all kinds of Old Testament commands. I mean, in the very next chapter, Leviticus 19.19 says not to wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. But I see all kinds of polycotton blends on Christians. What do we make of this accusation? Are we just picking and choosing what we want to believe from the Bible? Well, last time I reminded us that the Westminster Confession of Faith in in 1.9 teaches us the interpretive principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. The logic of Westminster is that if the Bible is the Word of God, and if God is holy and perfect and cannot lie, then it would make sense that the Bible has to be consistent with itself. So, uh, assuming that to be true, we always interpret Scripture in light of itself. We cannot go forward with any interpretation that would contradict the correct interpretation of another verse or passage of Scripture. So how does that principle apply to the accusation that we are cherry-picking verses that we want to follow and ignoring the ones that we don't? And before we go further here, I just want to note that much of what I'm sharing here is shamelessly stolen from Dr. Tim Keller in an article called Making Sense of Scripture's Inconsistency. And you can find that if you Google that uh, or look on the Gospel Coalition website, you'll be able to find that if you'd like to study further. First, Dr. Keller points out it's important to note that as far as Leviticus 18.20.22's prohibition on homosexuality goes, that's not the only place that the Bible prohibits homosexuality. Jesus, in his discussion of divorce in Matthew 19, affirms sex as something that's to take place only in a marriage between a man and a woman. And of course, Paul forbids homosexuality in places like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. So the rest of Scripture echoes Leviticus's prohibition on homosexuality. But what about the other things mentioned in the Old Testament that are no longer practiced by Christians? How are we getting away with that? And here again, we need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. The Old Testament spends a fair amount of words describing the various sacrifices offered in first the tabernacle and then the temple. All of these were to atone for the sin of God's people so that they could be in proximity to a holy God. There also were complex rules for ceremonial purity and cleanliness. You had to eat certain kinds of foods and avoid others. You had to wear certain kinds of clothes and not others. And the point of all of this was to highlight humanity's spiritual uncleanness and need for purification. But even in the Old Testament, there are hints that these sacrifices and regulations are symbols. They are pointing beyond themselves to something deeper. In Psalm 50, verses 12 through 15, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. 
there God is answering the the idea that somehow the the sacrifices of the Old Testament were to feed him or or to uh, satisfy his hunger. Uh, God says they were always pointing to something else. God doesn't need food from anyone. All the world and all its fullness are his. Um, He invites his people to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is what those sacrifices ought to have been pointing to the whole time. In Psalm 51, verse 17, the psalmist writes, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is another place where we see that the sacrifices were pointing to something else. The people were to have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart as they sacrificed these animals. That was the substance. That was the part that was pleasing to God. In Hosea 6, 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Then once we get to the New Testament and encounter Jesus, we see what those Old Testament writers were were getting at, what those hints were pointing to. Jesus himself comes in and and abolishes the food laws in Mark 7, 19. And you notice throughout his ministry in the Gospels, he ignores all kinds of Old Testament cleanliness laws. He touches lepers and dead bodies. Why did Jesus do all of that? The answer is because when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two, showing that he had done away with the need for the entire sacrificial system and its cleanliness loss. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and he is now the means by which we are made clean. This is the entire point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the ceremonial law. Hebrews 10, 8-14 actually makes this point explicitly. And so if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to open it there and you can follow along as I read. When he, that is Jesus, said, said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So verse 9 tells us there that Jesus did away with the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system. We don't have to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore to atone for our sin. Why? Verse 10 tells us we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14, which we didn't read, repeats that same idea. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. So Jesus, he fulfills all that the sacrificial law pointed to. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that we needed. It was the blood of Jesus. And since he has died on the cross, we have it. And he has made that atonement once and for all. So we don't need any more sacrifices. The thing to which they pointed has come. And so it's important to say here, just to kind of summarize what we've been talking about, In that sense, Christians are not cherry-picking which laws to keep, which parts of the Bible we're obeying. We're actually just following what the rest of the Bible tells us to follow. We're reading Scripture in light of Scripture. In other words, we're reading the sacrificial and the cleanliness laws in light of further revelation. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we are explicitly told in Scripture that we no longer follow those old laws. But that then returns us back to that question about homosexuality. What about that Old Testament command? Why are we still following that? Why aren't we saying that one is abolished? So here again, let's go back to the principle. We still are reading Scripture in light of Scripture. And when we do that, we see that the New Testament gives us further guidance on how to read the Old Testament law. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul there understands the moral law of the Old Testament to still be binding. He's saying we are supposed to love, and truly loving is fulfilling the law. So the laws of the Old Testament that we can rightly call the moral law, especially those that are summed up in the Ten Commandments, like Paul was quoting there, are still in force for us. We see this in the fact that the New Testament reiterates a lot of these commands, forbidding killing or adultery. This also includes sexual ethics. All of the Old Testament sex ethics are restated throughout the New Testament. Places like Matthew 5, 27 through 30, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, if you want to go look those up for further study. So certainly any commandment that is reaffirmed in the New Testament would still be in force for us today. Keller notes one other change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sins continue to be sins, but the penalties for them change. In the Old Testament, sins like adultery or incest were punishable with civil sanctions, even up to execution. And that's because at that time, God's people constituted a nation state. And so all the sins had civil penalties. But in the New Testament, the people of God are an assembly of churches all over the world in every nation, living under many different governments. The church is not a civil government. And so sins are dealt with by exhortation and at worst exclusion from membership. That's how Paul deals with the case of incest in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, and then he references it again in 2 Corinthians 2. Why did this change from civil punishment under the Old Testament to this different kind of punishment in the church in the New Testament? Under Christ, the gospel is not confined to a single nation. It's been released to go into all cultures and all peoples. So hopefully that answers some of how we can claim to be consistent, even while we are obeying some parts of the Bible and not others. Because of Christ, the ceremonial law has been repealed. We don't need to worry about wearing clothes of different kinds of fabrics. Because of Christ, the church is no longer a nation state imposing civil penalties. So no, we, we are not going to stone adulterers. But because Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and told us that if we love him, we will keep his commandments, We will keep the moral law of God as it is communicated in the Old Testament and reaffirmed in the New. To say it a different way, as we keep some parts of the Bible and not others, we're simply obeying the Bible and following Jesus. And so we're reading Scripture in light of Scripture. We're not cherry-picking. We're trying to be consistent in how we understand God's revelation about Himself and what He would have us do, even as we follow Jesus. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us again soon.